This is Front Page. We here at Front Page, we do our best to dig out the truth and bring it to you. Hello, all you freedom-loving people. Welcome to Front Page Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cameron Goulet. The House Judiciary Committee has subpoenaed the Bank of America. They asked the bank to explain why it turned over private information about U.S. citizens to the FBI. The new Speaker's short-term appropriations bill passed smoothly with the Democrats' help. So why did the White House and the Democrats suddenly go from opposing the bill to supporting it? New Hampshire refused to go along with the White House's request to cede the number one state in the primary. This is bad news for Biden. Of course, Biden's got even bigger problems, like Manchin's likely presidential bid. And some other good news is that the appeals court halted the gag order against President Trump. Okay, let's get into it. On Thursday, appellate division judge David Freeman temporarily lifted the gag order on President Trump that was originally issued by the New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engeron. The judge wrote, Considering the constitutional and statutory rights at issue, an interim stay is granted. The stay of the gag order will remain in place until at least November 27th, when it will be considered by a panel of the First Appellate Division. The gag order prohibited President Trump from making any statements about the judge's staff. President Trump has already been fined and has paid $15,000 in violations of the gag order for a post on True Social about Justice Engeron's principal law clerk, Allison Greenfield. Judge Friedman opined that Judge Engeron did not have the authority to monitor President Trump's speech outside the courtroom. Gag orders are generally used in criminal cases where a defendant may influence a jury. However, Justice Engeron is presiding over a civil trial without even a jury. So the conditions for a gag order are not met. On Thursday, President Trump's defense attorney, Alina Haba, was asked if she would advise President Trump to refrain from making statements about Ms. Greenfield. Haba said, I don't see a reason to limit it because Ms. James is continuing to disparage my client. Both sides need to be able to speak. And the fact that I frankly couldn't and my client couldn't speak for the past however many days is so unconstitutional. This week, the defense moved for a mistrial. In the motion for mistrial, the defense outlined in detail the gag order and its prevention of attorney criticism, arguing that the gag order led to misconduct. House Republicans are moving forward in their investigation of the Bank of America. They are investigating the bank's sharing with the FBI without lawful process, the private financial data of American transactions in Washington, D.C. by major banks, before and after January 6, 2021, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed the Bank of America for this issue. The committee subpoenaed relevant documents from the bank, including internal communications about the decision to transfer the information to the FBI. They also subpoenaed any communications that the bank had with the FBI. The Bank of America has a June 8th deadline to comply. Earlier, Whistleblowers claim that after the January 6th incident, the Bank of America provided the FBI with information about customers who traded in the Washington area on or near that day. And former FBI staffers say 
that the FBI did not instruct the Bank of America to do so, so it was the bank that voluntarily provided the information. George Hill, a retired FBI supervisory intelligence analyst, told the panel, the Bank of America, with no directive from the FBI, data mined its customer base. And they data mined a data range of January 5th, 2021 to January 7th, 2021, any Bank of America customer who used a Bank of America product, meaning a Bank of America credit card or debit card. Bank of America told the Judiciary Committee that its actions were in accordance with the law and that they were within a legal process initiated by the United States Department of Treasury. However, Jordan did not recognize this opinion. In a November 16th letter to Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, Jordan wrote that it's unclear what legal process permits the FBI or Bank of America to share sensitive customer information of potentially thousands of Bank of America customers and to implicate them in a federal law enforcement investigation without any clear criminal nexus. Jordan also said if such a lawful authority exists as the Bank of America asserts, for Bank of America to freely share private financial information without any legal process or specific nexus to criminality, Congress has a responsibility to consider reforms that adequately protect Americans' information. And if you've ever had problems with your bank before, we have something that we know many of you are looking for. Why would you give your money to people who hate you? That's the question Larry Elder asked when he was looking for a bank. He saw that too many banks are canceling hard-working, law-abiding Americans simply because they don't like what they do or what they stand for. So Larry got together with John Rich, Dr. Ben Carson, and some really smart bankers and technology experts, and they created their own bank, the old Glory Bank. It's built on one simple, strong, irrefutable principle, the United States Constitution, that brilliant document that forged this great nation out of freedom and liberty, those same values created Old Glory Bank, a bank that values freedom, faith and family, privacy, security and liberty. It's a bank named after the flag that represents the fabric of this country. It's a bank that will never cancel you for believing in the greatness of America. Old Glory Bank has one physical location in the heart of Oklahoma, but because they created a seamless, mobile, and online banking experience, they have customers in all 50 states. Old Glory Bank stands with you, so open an account today at oldglorybank.com. It should only take eight minutes. On Wednesday, New Hampshire officially set January 23rd as the date for the 2024 U.S. presidential primary. They ignored a plan pushed by President Biden and the Democrats to make the state forego the first state in the nation's primaries. For more than a century, New Hampshire has held first in the nation primary status. In 1975, the state enacted a law requiring primaries to be held at least seven days in advance of other states. That's why New Hampshire Secretary of State David Hanlon said that the January 23rd primary date is consistent with state law and it preserves Iowa's traditional status as the first state to pre-select. The difference between a pre-election and a primary election is that 
Pre-elected voters have to assemble at the polling station at the prescribed time, hold a meeting, make speeches, and finally cast their votes. The whole process is more complicated and time-consuming. In a primary election, voters go to the polling station at any time they choose on the polling day and they leave after casting their votes, which is a simpler procedure. Biden earlier polled Iowa and New Hampshire from the number one spot on the party's nominating calendar in favor of the more diverse state of South Carolina. That's because those two predominantly white states did not elect Biden in 2020. And South Carolina, with its large African-American electorate, gave Biden a strong boost in the 2020 race. The dispute between New Hampshire and the Democrats also means that Biden's name will not be on the list for this year's New Hampshire presidential primary because he's not registered. That's bad news for Biden. In late October, Biden supporters showed up in New Hampshire calling for an unofficial candidate campaigner strategy, which was handwriting Biden's name and then voting. This certainly works, but it makes it more difficult for voters. And in reality, any added effort reduces voter participation. Another problem for President Biden is that Senator Joe Manchin is very likely to run for president as a third party candidate. In an interview with Manchin said that Joe Biden is not the person we thought he was when he was elected in 2020 and Biden has been pushed so far to the left after being elected as a centrist and moderate. Although he has not made a final decision yet, Manchin admits that he is seriously thinking about running for office. Can you take us inside your thinking right now? Are you seriously contemplating a run for the White House? Here's what I'm seriously contemplating. I, and I've said this very clearly, but people always want to say, well, are you going to run? I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure and mobilize that moderate, sensible, common sense middle. That could be a center left, center right. So it could be a person who is involved in the grand old party forever. But are you considering running for president? I will do anything I can to help my country. Is that a yes? And you're saying, does that mean you would consider it? Absolutely. Every American should consider if they're in a position to help save the country. I think we're on the wrong course. So I will do everything possible. Now, there's a lot of good people out there. I hope I can motivate and a lot of capable people, competent, that they've just given up. I said, don't give up. This is the best country in the world. Another one of President Biden's major troubles is the new speaker's unwavering support for the investigation into the Biden family's corruption. Speaker Mike Johnson has been very clear in his approach to the impeachment investigation into the business dealings of Joe Biden and his family. Johnson said he received an update on the impeachment inquiry on Wednesday from the three committee chairs who are overseeing the impeachment probe. He said that the current impeachment investigation has shown corruption in the Biden family. He said, at this stage, our impeachment inquiry has already shown the corrupt conduct of the president's family and that he and White House officials have repeatedly lied about his knowledge and involvement in his family's business activities. Johnson said in a statement, it has also exposed the tens of millions of dollars from foreign adversaries being paid to shell companies controlled by the president's son, brother, and their business associates. But more testimony is needed to fill in the gaps. He said, now, the appropriate step 
is to place key witnesses under oath and question them under penalty of perjury to fill gaps in the record. Johnson emphasized on Wednesday regarding his full support for the investigation. He said, I commend the good work of Chairman Comer, Jordan and Smith as we move forward toward an inflection point in this critical investigation, they have my full and unwavering support. The Senate passed the short-term spending bill that was introduced by House Speaker Mike Johnson. The bill passed by an overwhelming majority on Wednesday. They successfully averted a government shutdown. The Senate vote was 87 to 11, with 10 Republicans and one Democrat voting against the bill. This result, it should be noted, was obvious after the two leaders of the Senate took their positions on Monday. What makes people curious is, first of all, why did the White House change its attitude? At first, the White House dismissed the stepped funding bill, saying that it was not serious and it would lead to chaos and more shutdowns. But within 72 hours, the White House decided to support the bill. The White House's change in attitude came as Democrats recognized the House bill offered them the closest thing to a win. The bill not only avoided a government shutdown, but it also avoided major funding cuts. Senator Debbie Stabenow, the number three Democratic leader, said the initial reaction was it keeps chaos going, which it does. Then we started thinking about it. What would happen if it didn't pass? To avoid a government shutdown, Democrats also made a painful compromise. The bill leaves out the White House's priority, which is a nearly $106 billion defense supplemental that would fund aid to Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific. Of course, most of this funding would be for Ukraine. The White House was also worried about the consequences of a complicated bill with multiple funding deadlines. Senate Appropriations Committee Chair Patty Murray called it the craziest, stupidest thing I've ever heard. But that wasn't enough reason to oppose the bill. It can only be said that the new speaker has taken the situation and played it just right. The question for Democrats and the White House now is what can they do to advance Biden's request for $106 billion in defense supplemental funding? But there's little chance that they can push for any action before some government funding runs out on January 19th of next year. The second thing that intrigued people was that the Speaker relied on the support of Democrats to pass this bill, with more Republicans opposing it than Democrats opposing it. But the Republican hardliners didn't call for Johnson's removal either. Why are they more tolerant of Speaker Johnson than they were of the former Speaker? Florida Republican U.S. Representative Matt Gates, who lashed out at former Speaker McCarthy, voted against Johnson's CR bill but said everybody gets a mulligan. Gates explained this with a metaphor. He said, when you change football coaches, like the new coach that comes in, he still has to coach the last coach's team for a few games before they really get their system and their offense installed. So this is the last McCarthy play that we have to run. And I know Speaker Johnson doesn't even want to do it. Johnson has made a similar argument. He said, I can't turn an aircraft carrier overnight. After a closed door meeting of House Republicans on the morning of November 14th, Johnson said, we will not surrender. He also said, but you have to pick the battles you can win. When asked about criticism of the stop gap from arch conservatives, Johnson responded, 
I'm one of the arch conservatives, okay? The House Freedom Caucus, a concentration of hardline Republicans, issued a formal position statement against the CR on Tuesday, but they also affirmed that the caucus is committed to working with Speaker Johnson, even though it added that it's seeking bold change. Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't rank high among Republican contenders, but his personal style does stand out. His fiery eloquence is impressive to some. On Wednesday night, he once again proved his mettle in this regard. CNN's Newsnight program invited Ramaswamy as a guest to deliver a topical commentary. The host didn't focus on the day's meeting in California between Biden and Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping, nor did he talk about the fact that California Governor Gavin Newsom got the city of San Francisco cleaned up just to welcome a dictator, Xi Jinping. What CNN did focus on was President Trump's scathing comments about the radical left over the weekend, which was four days earlier. Ramaswamy told the host directly, you are focusing on the wrong thing. Let's listen to this fascinating conversation. That language, they live like vermin. Do you believe that that is, as your uh, Republican colleague Chris Christie has said, neo-Nazi rhetoric? This is a classic mainstream media move. Pick some individual phrase of Donald Trump Focus on literally that word without actually interrogating the substance of what's at issue. The word I was chosen for a reason. We are in the middle reason. of a cultural war in this country. The well, word you was know chosen what? It, it, for a it's reason. It's actually describing a series of behaviors. You have Antifa and other related groups that have been burning down cities for the last three years in this country. Would you describe them Wildly as vermin? violating the rule of law. We have an invasion on our southern border. We have millions of people crossing our southern border. Let's talk about the substance okay. of why we have to recognize would, that we're not in ordinary you, times. Would you so use that language So the vocabulary of the vermin or not is not what's important. Well, I haven't used that language. So, so you can look you? at my, my track record on the campaign trail. I talk about the issues. We all talk about them differently. But what I'm not going to do is play some game of focusing on some word that somebody else said without ignoring entirely the substance of what we're actually talking about. A border crisis of historic proportion. Economic stagnation we haven't seen in 50 years. A national identity crisis and a loss of national pride in the next generation that's potentially existential for this country. Let's talk about our dependence on China. Today we're actually talking about Xi Jinping. Picking on Donald Trump's word vermin to talk about that status quo. You know what's vermin? What's running around San Francisco on a given day before Gavin Newsom cleaned it up on a dime to roll out the red carpet for Xi Jinping? If he could do that for Xi Jinping, he could have done it on an ordinary day. And yet we're here sitting talking not about the substance of that, but on one word that Donald Trump said in some speech in Miami. This is what's wrong with the mainstream media. Focus on the substance and let's have an actual policy debate rather than talking to a presidential candidate instead of the policy substance of what's actually going on in the country. Picking on some word that Donald Trump said on a certain day and asking me for comment on it. Give me a break. Okay, this is our podcast for today. Thank you again for listening to Front Page Podcast. For more exclusive in-depth content, please go to frontpageshow.com.